This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Just be sitting up there jacked with Pepsi. I'm there for the pot goat, you just gotta pack me in committed to the bow early on like i love getting close and putting up you cover a range of stuff on here too right like we call this the uh, the thp world headquarters you know my grandpa roy weatherby i came into like that golden little pocket where there was like four or five different bowls just you're canadian we're doing yeah, a canadian I... podcast my name is douglas Bowes. i'm robbie denning Wolfgang. that's my one job Pete's done. Pete can sign off now. Thanks, Pete. Thanks yeah, a lot. You're welcome. Uh, it was yeah. nice, nice talk, talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been about a year, Mark, already. Has it? Yeah. That blows me away. Yeah, it does. Because I was yeah. I was like, oh. I, I would have said I would have said middle of the winter. Yeah. Because Pete and I were like, oh, we should do a we should turkey season coming up. We should uh, do a turkey se- show. And then I was like, yeah. And then Pete suggested getting you back on. And then I was like, fuck, didn't we just have Mark on? And I looked I and I was like, "Whoa, oh, it was last March. <laughs> I was like, holy fuck, man. No way. Really? It was yeah. that. Wow. Time I know I talked to you a little bit. I talked to you a little bit on uh, whether it's Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. Or whatever kind of it was. Dur- you guys during the- hunting season. Yeah. yeah your moose after the moose stuff. season there. Yeah. But that was about um, it. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So how you been the last year? Um, Great. Really good, actually. Um, Busy. Yeah. Uh, lots lots going on and lots of fronts <clears throat> uh life's good uh getting lots of hunting in uh, i'm <clears throat> gosh i think i'm probably like n- somewhere between 90 and 100 days a year now nice nice so yeah like, and you've kids been are gone. Duck hunting a lot too right yeah i've been doing doing much more of that so like last last year once the elk archery season was over i pretty much hunted ducks with my puppy right through till end November and then uh kind of did the late season deer archery thing. So cool. 
right. get into more. Oh, and, and then the, the moose, archery. the moose hunt was in the middle, middle of that. So, yeah, but yeah, nice. So, no, everything's, everything's really good. I, I, uh, I started taking, doing yoga Oh yeah, around the beginning of December. Feel and, better? And, uh, oh my God, I feel awesome. Yeah, that's good. I've been, I've been working with a professional trainer, bodybuilder in the gym, like with weights for about three years. And I feel better from yoga actually. Yeah. Just balance, stability, um, whole body, like everything. I mean, it's freaking hard. Mm -hmm. Thursday nights is a workout. It's hot. You're just like, there isn't a part of your body that's not like swatting and, and, uh, ah, just, I feel, feel really good. So physically I feel good. Lots on the go. That's good to hear. Yeah. That's that yoga. It's not easy. It's funny. I, you suggest it to people and they're like yoga, that's for chicks. I'm like, give it a whirl, man. Oh, it's, it's, it's hard. Like yeah, it's, it and, and, um, like it's, it's whole body, uh-huh. you know, like I said, there's, there isn't a part of your body that's not, you know, got some, something that you have to, you have to work and, um, and especially stuff like balance and, and you don't realize, or maybe you do how incredibly important balance is out in the mountains or hunting. Cause you got this broken ground. Like just think about walking through a, through a recently logged cut block, right? Oh, we'll just go up along the edge of the cut block and get up into the timber. And then you're like, holy shit, what the hell are we doing? Or, or, uh, um, oh, a reclaimed skid trail across the, across the cut block. You only walk on those things once. And then it's actually easier to walk in the cut block than on the reclaimed trail, but it's all that over bang over, yeah. you know, twist that out like that. And you got this pack on and it's back and forth and it's so much balance, even, even in the mountains, like with a pack and you're climbing up or coming down, there's so much balance and so many of those little muscles that are just firing to like you know, hold you and keep your balance. And, um, yeah, you go to yoga and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I can't even stand on one leg and lift, you know, lift the other one up kind of thing. And you're, and you're like, wow, it's, uh, got a lot to work on, but yeah, it's kind of got that all round workout to it. You got lots of strength, you got your balance and flexibility. It does. And, and there is like a, there's an endurance part to it. Like there's actually physical, you know, like a, remember sometimes, you know, you're doing something and you're, and you're holding your body weight mm-hmm. and you just get that where your muscles are just shaking and you're like, Oh my God, it's like, I can't, I can't do this. And so, yeah, it's great. It's good for in- injury prevention. It's great for everything. Like just have that flexibility that, you know, the body strength and, and that balance. Oh, like I absolutely agree with the, I think the first day I went out on the trap line in December, um, somebody had try to take their side by side up this little road that I was going to run my trap line up. And there's like, they're chewing going up and like, it's going back and forth and you got all these ruts and you know, if you're a snowmobile guy and you're on a road or a trail that the quad guys gone on, you hate them because yeah. they got these two big wheel ruts and your snowmobile is like, it, it's, it's back and forth. Well, my snowmobile did the, uh, the rodeo bull thing where it went, oh, we're going left into this wheel track and then bang, we're going to go to the right one. And it literally like, I went sailing off the snowmobile. It was just like the big PBR bull that just went, you're coming off in 1.8 seconds, buddy. And it's like, bang, bang, two different directions. 
And I think if I hadn't have been doing yoga, um, that would have been like a winter career ending <laughs> tumble that wow. I took off the snowmobile. I got up and I was like, I was like, uh oh. And then I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, I think I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank Where God for you. Thank God for the yoga. It, but it, it's, it's amazing. Like it, even nothing that extreme, just, you know, just, you know, just straining or, or pulling a hamstring or, you know, a calf or anything like that. Like if you have, if you're not used to having that flexibility and that balance in your muscles, then forget it. Like it's just oh, absolutely. So crucial. Absolutely. And when you get older, like it's, it's things like, um, yeah, you can weight train in that and you can have like, oh, I feel my legs feel really strong. Arms feel really strong. And then you're like, you're throwing a strap over the canoe on the truck and you, you know, you reach way up and you give it a tug and you're like, oh, wham, what the hell was that? Right. Yeah. Some, some muscle in your neck or whatever gets it. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's got it. Like strength training is good for certain instances in the backcountry, but yeah, without that flexibility, then forget it because you need flexibility and balance. Yeah. yeah. Yep, you need absolutely. that stuff more than, more than you need strength. Like it's going to get you out of jam. The biggest one I find is with injury. Like I stretch every day and mm. you know, I don't do yoga every day. I was do I, I have done it before and I kind of fall in and out of a regimen throughout the year, but like sometimes I'll get back into it and I'll do it and then, you know, I'll get off it and then you feel good. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it makes a, uh, makes a world of difference. I'm a huge advocate for it now. There's no like manliness thing to it or whatever. Yeah. It's hard and it is hard. it's good. And, I think and, it's harder for guys good. too. I think it is harder. Like if you haven't done it and you're in your late thirties, early forties or older, and you get into it, you realize how fucking pathetic you are with stretching and balance and all that stuff. You're like, Oh my oh, God. I absolutely. Am Things like your horrible. hip flexors and oh, yeah. your, and your, you know, all the, all those stuff that guys tend to typically avoid if they go to the gym. Right. Yeah. You know, just range of motion in, in your hip sockets and range of motion in your shoulders and yeah, just all of that stuff, muscles that, you know, you didn't, you didn't know that you weren't, you weren't using and, um, boy, it sure, it sure pays off. I just feel, I wake up, I feel really good. Mm -hmm. I go eight, I go eight times a week. So, oh, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's seven that's really o'clock good. in the morning and just got back about an hour ago. So, yeah. Yeah. It's nice. funny. You fall into those, you get into a groove of something and you just like, you feel better. And then the more you do it, you just feel even better. And it's fuck, it's just a day. It's like a drug almost and just want more and more of it. I, uh, I, I think I'm actually kind of feeling that right now because I don't go on the weekends, even though there's like a 10 AM class, I'm like, yeah. okay, weekends are going to do stuff or whatever. And then it's like, I had the shittiest sleeps <laughs> this weekend yeah, and I kind of really? think it was because I wasn't, yeah. wasn't going. So yeah, you know, I, I believe it. Yeah, for sure. It's tough. <laughs> you get into something I, and you do it every day. It's hard to not do it. Like mentally, well, even of, like you just like mentally don't feel like, fuck, I just, I, I just feel so much better if I just do it. Like, and you just, you have that mindset and it, the, you know, the mind has a lot to do with it too, but yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh. I have a, like an old family, old family friend. He's a, uh, a guide, really earthy kind of, kind of guy lives in a wall tent on his dad's property. Kind of, yeah. kind of dude, uh, lives, lives for hunting, uh, just a phenomenal archery hunter, phenomenal guide. And I bumped into him last year, getting ready, like in the archery season, we were basically camped right beside his, the, the outfitters corral. 
And he came in and, you know, we were talking and stuff and catching up or whatever. And he said he started doing this, uh, this program. You can find it online. It's called, um, called Winha or, or Winha or something like that. And it's like this, it, the guy does the cold immersion stuff, but then it's his breathing thing as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like this restorative breathing kind of method. And it, and it's about this deep breathing. Like apparently we only use like the top, like 10% yep. of our lungs. And so Scotty told me, he said, oh man, he says, you got to check this out. You got to do it. So he said, now when we're climbing up the mountains, we'll like, we'll hike for like two hours and we'll get up there. And he says, we'll just stop. We'll take a break. I'll sit down and I'll do this breathing routine, which is like these huge breaths in, empty your lungs, huge breaths, empty your lungs. And you do these these three sets of 30 cycles and this sort of stuff. And he goes, that's it. End of muscle soreness, end of lactic acid buildup. He Mm -hmm. says, I stand up and it's like, he said, after two hours of climbing with the pack on, he said, I am peak, ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. um, It's crazy how much breathing has, like it just has to do with, uh, you know, muscle recovery, lactic acid, like you said, all that stuff. I know they do a lot of, now they have breathing clinics that they put on for like, and it takes, it's funny, like it'll be a weekend clinic just on breathing. You think you know how to breathe, but you have absolutely no idea to do it. And they're doing a lot now with like professional athletes and that they're getting mm-hmm, it. It's mm-hmm. coming more yeah, and more yoga. Yeah. Yoga does a lot on focuses on, on your breathing. Cause in yeah. weightlifting, you tend to hold your breath Yeah. in yoga. They're always like, never sacrifice your breathing. You know, fill your lungs, let mm-hmm. it go, fill your lungs, let it go. And that's how your body softens and your nervous system calms down and stuff. And you get more range out of your stretches and, and everything. Yeah. So yeah, which Wim, would be great to Wim, like Hof. Wim Hof. If people, yeah. people want to look it up, Wim Hof method. Cool. I'll throw, I'll throw it down in the show notes too. But even like in a, in, you know, in a high pressure situation of hunting, like if you're good with your breathing, it'll just help you calm down. You know, oh. if you're sitting there, if you got target panic. Everything will just help you. You know, you think it's it, it's got to be the same thing. It's got to help you control that, control the shake, control your anxiousness. Everything just yep. settle into your shot for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of years ago, uh, I took out a friend of Curtis's uh, in the archery season. So his first time he'd been bow hunting in the backcountry, and super excited about it. And it was like I think the first day we got into like a bull, and I was like, okay, you stay here. I'm going to go over the ridge, and the bull's coming, and and the bull came like right up the ridge below him, bugling and like walk, you know, 30 yards past him and then kind of like was coming over the ridge looking for me because I was the one making the noise and super cool experience, no shot opportunity. And afterwards he was like, man, I was, I was just shaking. Yeah. And so we had a little talk about that and it's sort of like, okay, let's, let's figure out like what, what, why were you shaking? Like what was causing you to do that? You know, are you thinking too far ahead? Like thinking of all the great things after you've got this bull, right? Like, you know, you get all the like, hey, way to go. And I got a bull and all this kind of stuff. Like, are you thinking too far ahead and you're not staying in the moment? And we kind of had a little talk about it. And so I said, here's how I handle it. And the way I handle it is, is in every situation, especially bow hunting, I absolutely go through my mind. This is not going to work out because 99.9% of the time it doesn't when you're bow hunting. So it's like, this probably isn't going to work out. So just stay calm. 
watch what this bull's doing. If he's like there, he's going to go there nine times out of 10, he's going to stand behind something that you have no shot, uh, you know, or whatever. And then if you're like, okay, he has to step out like right there in order for me to have my shot. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, he's going to step out. It's like up, aim, pull, bang. And then it's over. And it's like, you, you have no, Mm -hmm. no, but but you're sitting there just going, well, I might as well just take this in. This is pretty cool. I got a bull at 20 yards and I'm probably not going to get a shot because that's usually what happens. Um, and, and you, and you psychologically, you just stay completely calm. And a couple of days later, he was in exact same situation again. And he goes, that's what I did. He goes, um, this probably isn't going to work out. And he just stayed completely calm. And then all of a sudden the bull stepped out in, in an open and he's like, Oh shit, there he is. And he up and he went to full draw. And then the bull did that thing where about the time he was ready to release the bull hit his like scent line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like they get stung uh-huh. on the end of the nose and they just turn around and he didn't release, but he was like, I was a hundred percent calm the whole time. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, there's a shot. Yeah. 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 You don't give yourself the opportunity to psych yourself out yet. No, absolutely. And so now I kind of approach seasons like that. Yeah. Just stay calm. Probably won't get anything this year. (laughs) That's Pete's motto. (laughs) That's my motto for sure. Yeah. My wife's going to fill the freezer this year for sure. Yeah. Hey Pete. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even got to worry about this. And then she does. (laughs) <laughs> that's why that's why i always joke like i would never have like a tv hunting show because like me and, and like my hunting career it would be like hey folks um episode one of season eight uh glad you've been following along hopefully maybe we'll get something this year <laughs> glad glad you've been sticking it out for eight seasons haven't we had a lot of fun <laughs> we're all in it for the long I'll just see you yeah. get your first animal there. Jeez, why can't, you, why can't, yeah, why can't I get this a contract? Far. You can't quit them. now. You got to stick with me now. <laughs> yeah, really. Really, yeah. It's, um, we're rooting for the underdog. It's like, why can't I get a Netflix contract? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's oh, good. Shit. So uh, I see uh, you and Charles put out a little Instagram post there. They got a new ta- uh, take action up on their website for the caribou. Yeah, so we got the um, uh, support science-based wolf control for British Columbia's caribou recovery program out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. more that's, signatures uh, out there, so. Everybody yeah, I gotta, I'll and... cycle back with Charles in about a week and see what the numbers are. What we actually look at is number of emails sent. So every person is emailing 60 MLAs. Mm-hmm. So you look at the total number of, of people that have been reached by people. Um, so 60 emails and a hundred people, 6,000 emails that have gone out. Right. So, um, numbers can stack up, you know, pretty, pretty quick. And people can hear the messages, uh, pretty quick, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> we always try to keep something, um, on the books, you know, for Canada. So I'm like a content writer for, for Howell or campaign writer, I guess you'd call it sponsor. And, uh, we try to keep things engaged for them up here and for the folks in Canada, uh, engaged in knowing that, you know, people are looking out for them. The fur bearers association launched a campaign last month to try to get everybody bombarding the government with, and the wolf call stuff again. And so we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to hit back. We're going to, uh, it's a tit for tat thing now. 
uh, in these anti-hunting, anti-trapping groups, you know, and the way we looked at it or the way I looked at it anyways on this one, this is about caribou recovery. So it's like maybe one day um, our great grandchildren will be able to hunt these caribou. My father and my father-in-law hunted these caribou in the South Selkirks, you know, and they, and they got bulls. Uh, I never did. Uh, it skipped me and maybe one day if these caribou are around first nations, you know, they have a right to be able to go back to practicing traditional hunting in their culture with that are tied to the caribou. And maybe one day our great grandkids will as well. So the principle here is, uh, in my mind was in this campaign was we have really, really good science in British Columbia on the caribou and the caribou wolf moose habitat dynamics, probably like the most comprehensive wildlife science we have NBC is on this caribou recover on the caribou recovery programs. And so if you uphold the principle of like, what is the science telling us we need to do? The science is showing that wolf density reduction is helping. Not every single herd that's endangered in BC is limited by wolf predation, but the ones that are, are, are the ones where they're doing wolf control and the science is showing it's helping. So we have groups out here that are putting the wolf ahead of an endangered species, denying the science and trying to cloud the public discourse with all types of stuff. BC has a war on wolves. Conservation officers are using military assault weapons to shoot wolves out of helicopters. Uh, Miley Cyrus was up here. You know, all this type of stuff. We want the photographs. The government will, won't release the photographs of the field records of the wolves that were that were killed because we want to be able to look at them to see if the wolves were killed humanely. And like, there's all this stuff out there, right? And um, so we just were like, okay, they're not telling the truth. And this is about following the science. Uh, and it's to do with an endangered species, not something to do with hunting at least for our generation. And like I said, it's time to hit back and it's time to let them know that like we're on the scene too. And and we're, we're going to push back. We're going to tie up your resources. We're going to frustrate you. And, you know, one of the really cool emails that I've seen that's come back from an MLA is thank you. It's actually really good to hear from uh, the other side on this issue. That's what an MLA told somebody. Oh, right on. Good. That's good. You know, so they've been for years, they've been bombarded and the wolf call, it's inhumane. It's like, it's, you know, it's not helping caribou. And this is, this is what the elected officials get. And all of a sudden we come along, not attacking them, but it's just like, Hey, the government's approved wolf control in these areas. The science is showing that it's helping. Uh, and here's some facts, you know, here's, here's some things. So everybody that was writing in was getting like a different email with little bits and pieces of factual information for the MLAs. And so now they're actually going, oh, oh, interesting. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Right. And they're, they're, you're educating them with it, with sort of the other perspective on wolf control. And that's how politics works. Yeah. So yeah. at the end of the day, they they got to find the middle road. But if there isn't a middle road between two sides, then it just goes defaults to the one side, right? So yeah. And but and they, that's the shame is that at the end of the day, it's it's the animals. It has nothing to do with this side or that. I mean, it's the animals who are yeah. suffering by this by these groups 
that think that we're just we want to save it to kill it and that's not true like we wouldn't go through all this effort and all this fucking work to get caribou back on the landscape just to go fucking shoot them all like yeah you break (laughs) yeah and and that's that's the thing is uh you know and it's a it's a hard it's a hard truth to get across to the other side but hunters care about all this stuff this is why we're out there this is this is an endangered species yeah it's off the table for hunting doesn't matter we still care about care about it if you if you went up north you know on a moose hunt or something like that and you're glassing and you went holy shit guys look there's six boreal caribou they're federally endangered species unbelievable you know i wonder if they're going to be here in 10 years like like you would appreciate that Mm -hmm. just like you appreciate when you're sitting there going Hey, look at all these chickadees that are like scrounging around on the branch above yeah. me or the, or the squirrel or the, you know, the Wolverine tracks or, you know, like whatever it or is. Or even it's wolves, like-, like for that matter, like I love seeing wolves on a landscape, but I love, I don't love seeing too many wolves because I know what that ultimately leads to if there's too many wolves. Right. No, like ab- balance. absolutely. Balance. Absolutely. Yep. And, um, so yeah, we got that, uh, we got that campaign fired up and, you know, hopefully we're getting, you know, lots of people from BC stepping up. We got people from down in the United States are stepping up. That's our slogan, hell across borders, right? We're, we're looking at North America as North America. So we're going to stand up on every issue, whether you live in California or you live in Canada, doesn't matter. We're hunters and um, we're standing up for, or the right thing here and that's that's what howl does for us yeah it's great they, yeah they got we got right now a goal of thousand and we got 670 so yep that's it that was one yeah. thing that we heard about before there wasn't a lot of canadian interaction and man it's so easy to do and it's so yeah. fast like they've streamlined oh it, it is like yeah they've dialed this thing in like everybody should be hopping on it does not take you even five minutes from start to finish and you can go through a whole whack of these it's not like that's one, like it takes less than 30 seconds to, to get logged in and do your action and, and yeah. out if you're just doing one. Yeah. It's, well, when you're, when you're on there, don't it. just click on ours because we need it coming back the other way too. Like click on help yeah. the guys in Oregon or help them California or help them, you know, wherever, wherever you see an action to be, it's just, you're supporting your fellow outdoorsmen. Go on there and help yeah. everybody. Don't just click the ones that, you know, if you're from BC, you're worried about the BC because it's got to come back, you know, it's going to come full swing and there's more American hunt, more American outdoorsmen. There are Canadians. So, um, if we can get their support, definitely the better, but I know we, when we had John on last, he was saying that it's, we get less engagement with the Canadians than they do with the Americans. But I mean, you know, they obviously have 10 times the population and 10 times the outdoorsmen that we have, but still, I mean, um, it seems like, you know, we could do a little bit better for sure up here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, they, they do run into these same issues down there with like lower engagement, you know, than, than uh, what, you know, what they're hoping for. Um, but on, you know, sheer numbers, um, <clears throat> even, you know, proportionally, I think they got, you know, more people that'll get fired up and put pen to paper over this stuff than, than what, than what happens here. And, and yeah, it's uh, it's a completely different mindset. It's it's building a completely different culture uh, in Canada. I mean, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll generalize. Americans are a little bit more aggressive with some things. Uh, I used to work down there, and 
boy, you get some business people after work or whatever, and it's like they are fired up, like they're aggressive. So what do you think about this? You know, what about this universal healthcare thing? And I'm like, fuck you guys. It's like, it works over, you know? Yeah. Tell us about healthcare in Canada. What do you think? Should you just sit on your ass and get free healthcare? Should you get, get a job and pay for your own insurance and stuff, right? Like um, here in Canada, it's like nobody brings that stuff up after or after yeah. work, right? <laughs> Um, so I give him credit for that when it comes to stuff like this, like, get, you know, getting involved in advocacy stuff, there is, uh, a lot more people that will get a lot more fired up Canada. We're a little bit more sort of like, you know, you know, Hey, geez, we do this hunting thing and you don't like us. And like, we're really sorry, but you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. no man, it's like, stand up and, yeah, and, and, and push back. So there's a bit of a culture shift there. Um, I think they have the same thing down in the States as we have here in Canada. Most people just want to go hunting because it's fun. It's enjoyment and they're, they're doing it to get away from all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you come back and we're in everybody's face going, Hey, there's this issue and that issue, and this is going on and that's going on. Like, please get involved. Some people have taken that to heart and I've literally had people write me and go, you know, before I didn't want to have anything to do with this stuff and politics. And now I'm like, I realize I have to, yeah, that's it, it's part of what I have to do on an annual basis to be a hunter. And just to let you know, I booked a meeting with my MLA and I want to go talk to them. And I'm like, holy shit, great. cool. That's awesome. And you I know, think that, once that's people great. start hearing about the successes, more people are going to, you know, I'm going to talk to Kevin. He's never heard about it before. Like, no, like it really helped. It made a difference here. Like your voice matters. It, yeah. it does it, because it's accumulated with all these different emails that you're sending out to all these different MLAs. And, Absolutely. you know, like it's, so hopefully over time, you know, we do get more engagement and people, don't think of it as a waste of time. It's like, no, I am going to go make a difference. I'm going to support my fellow Americans and my, and my fellow Canadian hunters and outdoorsmen. And yeah, yep, yep. And regardless of where, yeah. regardless of where it is, right? I mean, you know, Charles and I talked about that. So just let's just think about trappers. I mean, they're 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 so few in numbers. Mm -hmm. Like it, you know, here in British Columbia, I think you're talking like three or four thousand, you know, licensed trap lines. Right. I think there's maybe about 5,000 licensed trappers or whatever, like that, like that's nothing as far as numbers go. And if something comes out that's attacking trapping, they have no hope in hell. If every single one of them went and met with their MLAs, like they're outnumbered. So we're going to say, Hey hunters, um, this is all part of the same pot. These trappers also hunt you know, in the fall before the trapping season. And you would probably like to go trapping if you can get a trap line. And it's the same ideology that's saying, oh, what they're doing is horrible and what hunters are doing are horrible. And so we're going to go to bat for them. And if it's a hunting issue, they probably already have a hunting license. So they're also going to come on board as hunters as well. But when it comes to just strictly a trapping issue, it's like, man, if, if they're not there to stand up, if we're not there to stand up for them, you know, then that's a big win. Mm -hmm. If and you're if, a deer and an elk hunter, you better damn near like, uh, trappers because you know, mm. they, there's a lot of predator management they, they do for, you know, they're think of what the deer and the, the, um, deer and the elk herds would be like if it wasn't for trappers. 
And, and just think about if, you know, the anti-trapping groups managed to leverage a ban on trapping, right? Then that's wolf hunting, that's bobcat hunting, that's cougar hunting, that's, uh, you know, potentially bear hunting. Like it's, it's, they always look for like, where's the easy win. And so like the, the stop the wolf call campaign stuff, like that's not about the aerial removal of wolves for caribou recovery. It's about wolves total. It's about wolf hunting and it's about wolf trapping. That's the long game. Right. And then it's about all carnivores, which they tend to include black bears in that as well. It's just that the, that the aerial uh, wolf control program is so like sellable. It's so sexy, right? Like it's like just, it, it's Hollywood, right? Like a guns in a helicopter and all these stories and chasing these animals down and stuff. Right. So, so that's why they've jumped on that. Yeah, It's like, cause they can get a lot of emotional traction out of that. And then if they go, woohoo, we got the wolf call ended. All right. Look what these trappers do. Look what these hunters do. Look what, oh, geez, yeah. cougars, hounds, like, Hey, you know, so that's, we're looking for those fronts to kind of confront and counter, counter that stuff and, and, you know, set it back, set them back in their tracks. And like Charles said, hit them in their pocketbook too, right? The more we yeah. get involved and we're, we're running interference on them, the more they're burning up their, their budgets on, on us, just like they've been doing to us for years. So. Yeah. yeah. I seen another thing on the webpage, um, had something to do with that's good, directly going to hit. I think it was in Montana where there's a new bill coming out where they could actually be fined. Anti-hunting organizations could be fined or something like that. Uh, post a bond. Post a bond. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 To uh, post any type of anti-hunting, anti-trapping bill would require a $50,000 bond. Nice. That, yeah, that that's a good start. Yeah. 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 They got some really cool shit down in the States. Like the, you know, there are a bunch of States are working on, the getting amendments to the state constitutions, you know, there's the mm-hmm. constitution of the United States of America. Then each state has its own yeah. constitution yeah. to get uh, hunting, trapping, fishing, and foraging included as a right in different states. Oh, that'd be, that'd be good. So yeah. that, not just that's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. Well, hopefully it works out for them because then once it's, once it starts somewhere, maybe you'll gain traction and, you know, end up somewhere else like here. But we'll just, uh, you know, <clears throat> and, and you guys are a big part of this too. It's just, uh, we got to lead by example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to, you know, these things come out. We got to tell people, this is what's going on. These are the facts behind it. This is how it affects hunting. And here's what I'm doing about it. And, you know, come on, join us, take a couple minutes. Um, got any questions like reach out, we'll help you. So we've got a, you know, we've got a, um, you know, lead, lead by example. And, um, and I think in, in, in due time, you know, as more and more and more people become aware of what we all do and, uh, they, they, you know, gain a likeness for, for what we do, you know, outside of the campaign stuff, then when you say, okay, Hey, you know, those, that was a fun podcast, but now like, here's something serious. We need to talk to you about this. Right. And people yep. are like, okay, yep. You yeah. bet. What do, what do I need to do? Yeah, and sure. uh, you know, I think we just, we need to get there a little bit more. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it, it starts a conversation and I know a lot, let's, you know, it's, it's not always sexy to talk about it and to just dwell on or not dwell, but just focus on these issues. But I mean, they're important because without all this stuff, the other stuff isn't going to be around to talk about it also. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I, I want to, I got this kind of on my to-do list. I'll kind of like me, you know, sort of put it out here for people. I, w- I want to put it out as something like a talking head video or something. So when we're talking about issues in hunting and campaigns and you need to contact your MLAs, it's because something's happening. There, there's something happening that's potentially going to take away from hunting and we need to take action on it. There is um, another aspect of hunting, which tends to bother people, which is the whole social media thing. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the, paid in in insta influencers the people that are doing stuff on there that just that just horrifies all of us and the way animals get treated and you know and all this type of stuff and that's a component of what goes on in hunting if i were to collect data on those things as well as collect data on everything about hunting that's good, everything about hunting that makes people happy, everything in hunting that's like, man, that was a lot of fun. That was really cool. Every hunting season that we have, every opportunity, everything that we can buy a tag for, uh, every laugh that we've had, every great moment that we've had out there in the woods, all of the times we're just, we sit there on a mountain and go, oh, we're so lucky to be able to do this. That is 99% of hunting. Everything that every single one of you do on every one of your hunting trips that just is like, this is the best life in the world. That is 99% of what hunting is going on. We have a tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction, which I think gets way blown out of proportion, which is the, oh my God, look what this so-and-so is doing on social media, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then, oh God, there's another po- political issue, right? That, w- that we got to deal with those two things I think can come across and go, oh, all of hunting has gone to hell. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, Jesus, just every time you turn around, it's like something else or whatever. And I'm just like, I've just about had it. Like I, I, I could, I could quit tomorrow and just say, screw it with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. Because those are the things that, that we tend to focus on because they're issues. I think we should pay less attention to the, to the, to the ugly stuff on, on Instagram and whatnot. Cause I don't think, I think the hunting community is the only ones that are paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. but recognize yeah. that. And for, this is for me personally is like, I do what I do. And because I want all that good stuff that's going on out there of hunters and families and kids and the great opportunities that they have and uh, the great things they do for conservation when they volunteers. I just want that to just keep going on as it is. And occasionally I've got to step into the fray and, and attack an issue or, or counter something or whatever in order to protect that, you know, for everybody, but it's not, that doesn't represent most of what's going on in hunting. And I truly believe this 99% of what's going on out there is the great stuff that we all love and the great things that hunters do in their communities and for conservation and stuff. And then there's this little stuff that we've got to deal with campaigns. Uh, if there's an issue affecting hunting, it might not affect hunting and it might not affect everybody, 
but it could have a very disproportional impact on a certain group of hunters in a certain place or a certain method of hunting or whatever, but on a whole, it still represents a small impact to all hunting. But what we don't want is we don't want all hound hunters, you know, to get hammered on and lose the opportunity to hunt with hounds because then they move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. We don't want, oh, just, oh, look at those people up in Northeastern BC. They lost like 50% of their moose permits, like whatever. I don't, I don't go up there. So a small issue didn't affect everybody in British Columbia, but it had a very high impact on a certain region. And so we want people to get involved in advocacy campaigns because we want to compartmentalize those things and not allow issues to have a disproportionate impact on a certain group of people or a certain hunting method or a certain area. But it's not because it's an issue and it's something we're making a big deal about. It doesn't mean you should just go, oh, hunting's screwed. Why bother? Yeah. And yeah. and might as well hang up yeah. the bow kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And like we talked about before, like just the low lying fruit. I mean, if it doesn't affect, you know, the moose doesn't, you don't go hunt moose up in Northern British Columbia, but what's next, right? It's always going to be something. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but you know, and it, the, the thing about hunting is that like it, it, it's, it's just a way of life. Like there's so many other facets to it as well. I mean, like, like just nutrition and like yourself with yoga and stuff, like how much of a, myself and fitness and i know pete got it back into it as well and like the driving force behind just healthier lifestyle healthier living get being active all day was hunting you know what i mean like it's just it's just improvement of life and like if i didn't have hunting would i still be doing that maybe a little bit but not like a, not to the extent that i am now yeah yeah, yeah. no i mean for a lot of people it truly is a lifestyle because everything it is for me on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, there kind of isn't a part of my life that's not tied to mm -hmm. this outdoor hunting gathering lifestyle. Right. And even, even beyond that bigger, uh, you know, I've always said, I tend to see the world through a particular lens and it's through the lens of wildlife and everything that goes on the world goes on in the world. When it comes across my screen, I basically say, is this good for wildlife or bad for wildlife? Mm -hmm. That's how I tend to judge everything. You know, some other people might come at from come at it from access to healthcare or you know uh, equality or whatever, and it's like that's great. My lens happens to be how does this affect wildlife and their habitat, and ultimately my ability to hunt. Yeah. Everything else, if I'm like, well, it doesn't really have. Okay, don't care. Yeah. Right? Don't don't care. Mm -hmm. And that's think my about whole it, entire life is like that. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you think about it, anybody who goes out into the wilderness with you or with a friend or whatever, and you have an encounter with, doesn't matter, a bear, a, a deer, an elk, a moose, whatever, as long as you don't get attacked, uh, it's, it's always a positive experience, right? Mm. It, it's like you're connecting with, with, with the world, especially if you're coming out from, you know, a city or something like that, you don't get to see it every day. And, you know, you, you really get to engage with, with nature and stuff. It, it kind of, it's very wholesome and it's life is the way I see it. I, I kind of look through life kind of the same way you do with wildlife. And that's my main focus and just getting to slow life down, go out there. Then you have these encounters with wildlife and stuff. 
it's always a positive experience. It's always a memory you'll never forget. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, anything like, well, I'm going to throw this on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. It was just like, that was really neat. Like, yeah, just, you know, calf and calf and, and cow and, you know, fawn and doe doesn't matter anything. It's always positive. Even, even if it's a scary thing, you know, I got mm-hmm. charged by a oh, yeah. grizzly bear a couple of years ago and it was like, you know, it, it, it got up off the carcass and started coming at us and yelled at it and it stopped and yelled again and it turned around and ran off. And then it was like, Oh, that was kind of cool. <laughs> like you know, yeah. there was no shaking or whatever afterwards. And it was kind of like, Oh, that doesn't happen every day. Oh, <laughs> so it was yeah. like, now just, you just add that to the experience. Oh, remember that time I almost, I tried crossing the river exactly. up North by myself, spring bear hunting. Cause you know, whatever. And I got swept <laughs> down and I almost drowned and my rifle went under the water. My waders filled up. It was like, Hey, wasn't that, wasn't that great? Yeah. That's oh, yeah. hilarious. It's <laughs> yeah. way know, worse than that. <laughs> that's the trouble with these groups that are opposing like the fur bear association. The members of that, they're just, I, I fear that they don't have those experiences. Like they don't, they're just sitting uh, in a, a big, big major city and they they're so disconnected from what's actually happened like the wildlife and everything else that it's painful. Like it's just so sad. You know, I, I think that's a really, that's a really good point. And, um, or probably a lot of their experiences are urban, mm-hmm. you know, urban, urban wildlife and, and that whole, that whole relationship there. But, you know, I just, you know, I've got into trapping the last couple of years. I've, um, had the privilege of being signed on to a trap line as an assistant so I can go out and putter and do things. Don't get a lot, not making much off of it. It's cost costing me money. But what that's what that experience is doing me. So one, I was out there all this winter. And when you're trapping, you are completely focused on the life cycles of things that you do not pay much attention to when you're hunting. You know, it's just sort of like, oh, hey, there were, we saw Martin today, you know, when we're out wherever. Oh, that was so cool. But when you're trapping, you're like, are those Martin tracks? Are those Martin tracks? Is that a Martin track? Stop the snowmobile, you get off. Is that a Martin? Oh, man, there's a squirrel crossed here. There's a, oh, the squirrels are working here. Oh, uh, ooh, there's a grouse. He's along this edge or whatever. And it's like, oh, there's a little spot where a hare might hide under there. I wonder if there's a weasel around here. And, and you're, you're completely seeing the entire world, you know, I, I wonder if, I wonder if Martin are going to travel along that little area or do this or do that. And it's like your whole lens on what's going on out there is about a group of wildlife that you normally don't pay attention to when you're hunting. Like I said, other than you go, Oh, we, you know, we saw whatever, but now you're like, where are they? What are they doing? What are their patterns? Are there things here to eat? Cause you're trying to intercept and catch one just like you are in hunting. And so trapping became a vehicle for me to understand fur bears and what they need and where they are and make the connections between these logged landscapes and where there is and where there isn't fur bears and when I can and when I can't catch them. Because in the bigger picture, I could stop trapping, but I want to be able to step forward and say, this is not good for fur bears, what you're doing here. This is this is good. This is not good. Right. And I can draw from that experience. And I don't think the, oh, you shouldn't trap because it's cruel and inhumane. I don't think they probably know as much about the species and what mm-hmm. they actually need is a species to survive as far as habitat and prey 
and these types of things and what, you know, things like logging, how that impacts them to actually truly step out there and say, we are fur bear conservationists and this is what, what we need, right? Yeah. Um, to save fur bears. Cause all winter long, I never saw anybody else out there and it's like, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm just out here trying to figure out what fur bears do to learn yeah. about them. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's yeah. a perfect point. Like how many of them are out there doing or involved in it? They're not, they're sitting on their couch watching a ad campaign about how bad trapping is or how bad the wolf call is. Right. But like you said, it's, it's things like they get Miley Cyrus on board and you know, then people buy into it. No, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Should, Joe Rogan but... should get my, Miley Cyrus on his show, on his podcast. That'd be <laughs> awesome. That'd be good to watch. I'd listen to that one for sure. Oh, uh, geez. Yeah, they'd, <laughs> maybe they'd both have to be educated about, about wolf control. <laughs> no doubt. No. But uh, we got turkey season coming up. Yeah, it is. It's coming up fast. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little worried because it's still pretty goddamn cold. Yeah. Oh man. My where we turkey hunt, I talked to my mom two days ago and they just got two inches of snow. So I was like, oh boy. Yep. It's gonna be one of yep. those years. I remember we do get some years though, and like April 15th comes around, there's two feet of snow on the hills, and you're like, man. Yep. But it, it goes yep. quick, and then some years it's there's none. So yeah, you got the down, the down stuff on, and yeah. Hard to get a, around though, I find like it's just when there's that much snow on the ground, it's just, that's the hardest part is you hear a gobble off in the distance, but cutting any distance between you and them in two feet of snow is it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it seemed, it seems like every spring is like this. I'm going like, Oh my God. It's just like, this is going to be a really late spring, but you know, I'm just looking in my yard and from day to day, I'm like, it's happening fast. So in two weeks from now, um, like it'll, it'll be pretty good out there on the, you know, on the low country it's winter range to, to pretty damn warm this weekend too. Like we're into double digits again. Oh, well, really? Okay. 13 degrees. Yeah. Okay. So it's cool. It's going to start hammering down fast. We've just had a lot of cloud and just cool. So it's been a slow melt so far, but it looks like it's going to pick up here, which is, which is good for the Turkey. Yeah. Well, if the overnight like stay around zero, then it usually them. goes quick. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I've told people about, like, um, you know, zeroing in on where to go hunt turkeys is if you're like, oh, we've been in this area before and this is always really good. And you have a little bit of a later spring and you go into those areas and there's still a little bit of snow, maybe in the draw or you get down into a little group, group of trees or a little patch of timber or whatever. And it's sort of like, it's a little dank and kind of cold and that, you know, kind of not really nice t-shirt weather in the springtime, you get out of there, like back out and go look for those chunks of habitat that are dry and warm and got a little bit of sun and exposure because the turkeys do not like that wet, damp, cold stuff. Yeah. Because basically they're, they're out there one, like they're getting, picking up a few rays when the, when the sun comes up. But your new shoots and your insect activity is where it's going to be warm and dry. And so if you know your landscape, a big geographic area that you hunt, and you can narrow things down by going and looking for those dry, warmer aspects and then working out from there. But if you're covering a bunch of ground going, yeah, this is kind of like cold and cool and stuff. My experience, you're kind of wasting your wasting your time pounding that kind of ground too much. Give it a couple of weeks and maybe come back. Um, but look for those 
look for those drier, warm areas. So are those birds, when was their rut? It's right about now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it actually starts uh, in February. Oh, February. So like middle of February, they're going to start peaking up. So the, the change in daylight is going to start affecting testosterone levels in the males. They're going to be in the, still be in the big winter flocks and they're going to start gobbling and strutting and putting on their show and, 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 you know, getting mad at each other and all, all that stuff that turkeys do. And the, and the peak of the peak rut, uh, or strut called for turkeys, like the peak breeding is may, we may be just coming off of it. Like right now. Right. Right. So yeah, I think we, we talked about that last time too. On the yeah. show. And on so the then they're time. actually like, they're starting to kind of come down and then our season opens, but gobbling activity and the willingness of gobblers to like come into calls and stuff, it, they're still ramped up because it's still their breeding season, but they, they fluctuate like their testosterone levels can go up and down on a daily basis. So one day they can be quiet and not care, gobble, and then just wander off. And the next day they want to come like roaring in and they're gobbling their head off and they want to like slash your face into, into ribbons. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just because the testosterone level changes. And, and so you got these like up and down and up and down, but gradually from, you know, mid-March, it's this gradual taper, taper off into June. They can still be gobbling and breeding and, and a little bit of that, like, in the beginning of June, oh yeah, the few yeah. hens might be caught there to get the last few eggs in their, in their clutch, you know, and, and away they go. So, so that's the cool thing about our hunting season being on the 15th from a conservation perspective, the vast majority of the breeding is taking place before the season opens. Yeah, that's good. And I you guess know, that's so why they have we're, the spring. We're yeah. hunting them in a vulnerable time, but yeah, and, and they have the spring season all over North America because that's the most exciting time to hunt, and that's where your success is going to be the highest. Just like with elk, you know, it's their their goblin, their breeding, their testosterone levels are high, and you have the greatest chance of calling, uh, which is like a ton of fun, and then calling one in. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I guess that that would explain because I'm I'm like I've gone out and you could be hunting the exact same area for seven days in a row. The first six days you don't hear nothing. You could spend a day in there and then all of a sudden on that seventh morning, it's just magical and they're just going off and. Yep. So they were there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they were there. The it's just, part. they were, their testosterone levels were so low. They could, they could hear you do a few calls and it's like, whatever. <laughs> so how do you yeah. approach that kind of situation? If you're going into a place and you know, there's birds there, but they're just not goblin. Do you still just go in and call? Are you just more patient or you just keep plugging away till one morning when they're just horned? Uh, That's basically what I do is I just keep, I just keep plugging in kind of, you know, plugging away, going and doing the same things. Uh, You know, even when a a bird, a Tom's testosterone levels are a little low, he'll still shot gobble. Um, So, you know, he's there. Mm Mm-hmm. You might set up and try a little bit, but have no success. He just sort of like clams up and wanders off. And that's the last you ever hear of him, but he's there and he's going to be living there and he's going to be doing a circuit. And it's just like, stick with it, stick with it. Can I find him tomorrow morning? Can I find him the next day? Can I find him the next day? And then all of a sudden it's just like, there's that day where it's like, holy crap. He just like came straight in. Wow. 
yeah. you know, or the previous, like you said, the previous six days, you're like, oh my God, it's just like, I throw everything but the kitchen sink at this bird and it will not respond. Just keep at it. Elk are exactly the same way. You guys know this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, bugle, not he does, he comes in and then he gets weirded out and then he leaves. And then all of a sudden one day, it's just like your, your life is at risk, right? This yeah. thing comes yeah. thrashing in there and oh, stands yeah. there and throws, doesn't even worry about the wind. And there he is standing in front of you, <clears throat> raging away and turkeys are the same way. So this stick with stick with an area i think stay loyal to an area yeah if you know there's birds in there for sure absolutely so if you hear them gobbling in the morning and you've located them let's see if your play doesn't work out and you know you're gonna hunt your afternoon but for whatever reason you can't find them you're not successful how big of an area are they gonna come back to to roost for the night like is it a pretty small area like you know what I mean? Like, cause they got their roosting trees and everything. <clears throat> can it, can it vary like yes. by a huge amount or is it, oh, okay. It can't. Well, that's what I was wondering. They, I just wasn't they sure can if it'd come be like in this hundred like, yard area. They can come back to like consistently, you know, to a general geographic area and they can be, they can be a hundred yards away from where they were the night before. They can be half a kilometer away. Um, so, you know, they'll come back to like a general area, but off of private land, private land is that not that I've ever hunted private land, but I've just, you know, seen and learned a little bit about it with turkeys on private land here in the Kootenays. They will, I think because of the lack of pressure and predation and stuff, they'll become very loyal to like a particular roost tree and they'll come back to like a tree Generally, Miriams don't. Miriams are always moving around and they'll be on this ridge today. And then, and then you go in there in the morning and you all set up or whatever. And it's like, this is where he was yesterday morning. And then you're like daybreak. And it's like, holy shit, he's on the other ridge, like 700 yards away. Right. And you're like, you're scrambling to try to get over there before he gets out of the roost and stuff. And that's, that's the way the Miriams are They're, They do the Ouija board thing, but within yeah, yeah. kind of a general geographic area, the, I think the Goulds down in, you know, in Texas and maybe even the Rios, they're very, very loyal to particular roost trees just because they don't have a lot. And it's usually like big cottonwoods and riparian areas. So they'll consistently come back to the same, the same trees almost, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. Our Miriams are going to move around a little bit. So <clears throat> it can be a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I guess. It's yeah, like, I do what, remember finding, sorry, Kevin. Oh, that's all good. Go ahead. Um, I, I did find a roost tree one time when we first, my wife and I first started hunting turkeys. And it's funny you say about the private property because it was nestled up right, like it was surrounded by private property. Mm. Um, and I, I knew very little about them at the time. And the first thing I noticed was this white ring around the base of this tree. And it was just like, holy shit, is this disgusting? (laughs) Like seagulls. It was so obvious. It was, it was creepy. It was like, who the hell drew on the ground here? Like in a big white circle around it. And (laughs) it's kind of. You know, and I've, it's funny you say that because I've never found one that distinct before out on crown land. I'm not saying I haven't found a roost tree, but not like that one, but that one was literally a surrounded pocket. There's just a little chunk of crown kind of that you could get into, but it was just like, oh, I think they like this one. And we watched them come in and out of that tree multiple times throughout the the week or week and a half we hunted in there. So yeah, I I I think there's just a little bit more security on the private land where out on the crown land between hunters and predators, 
they they can't be predictable Mm -hmm. you know as soon as just like any animal as soon as they have a little bit of a pattern um you know where something can figure them out then if they don't change it they're dead yeah and and turkeys turkeys are the same way so yeah that makes sense we i found on uh we found on private land this old wood barn and they were they just love it in there for some reason but we weren't allowed to hunt on that we asked the guy offered to fix his fence he just said no but it would have made life a lot easier <laughs> they just you could see him too end of the day they'd fly up into that barn old old barn like all half falling down and then we're early morning you could see him hop out and go into the tree line and then disperse oh, do whatever cool. they do. yeah every day <laughs> cool yeah. when their numbers first started like building up here in bc <clears throat> they first kind of like immigrated up uh into the Creston Valley from the States. And so they started taking up residence in the agriculture area of, of Creston and West Creston. And they started doing that on the dairy operations as they were going in to roost in the big uh, dairy barns. And so this is where the first kind of conflict started as the turkeys showed up in Creston is the dairy farmers were phoning up the fish and wildlife branch going, you got to come and deal with these turkeys because they come in here half an hour before uh, sunset and they're like these big bombers coming into the, into the, um, the, the barn and it freaks the shit out of the dairy cows. And apparently dairy cows, if they get freaked out or scared or something happens, it's just like they zip it with the milk production. And so then these farmers oh, really? got these dairy cows that were like, you know, uh, traumatized last night because half a dozen turkeys came, you know, in or whatever. And it's like, then that's it. No milk tomorrow morning or for the next couple of days or whatever. So the, so the ranchers were, were getting choked. And so what they actually did in the, in the early 1980s, they moved a hundred or somewhere birds out of the Creston Valley to the East Kootenays. And they moved them to the uh, top of the world ranch at Fort Steele. <clears throat> that time it was a cattle cattle ranching operation run by Lonnie Anderson. And he was like, yep, I'll take them. Cause if they couldn't put them on private land, they weren't allowed to trans locate them to crown land. So they moved them onto the, um, the top of the world ranch. And so they, <clears throat> that's how the sort of the Fort Steele population got established. There grew from like a hundred, 200, 300 and something birds. It was, it used to be like a really great area around the whole Fort Steele, Steele area to hunt. Turkeys love cattle and they love cattle operations in the wintertime because, you know, there's, uh, there's feed, uh, there's grain, there's soils always turned up where they can get in and, and find stuff or whatever. So there's a really knit, close relationship between cows and, and turkeys. And then when uh, the top of the world ranch was sold, Lonnie, Lonnie Anderson sold it and the fellow that bought it turned it into a rehab center and has no cows on that and slowly over the years and years and years that turkey population around um the top of the world ranch diminished and and i literally like experienced from hundreds and hundreds of birds around there to like it's hard to find them now oh do you think they moved or they just died off yeah probably a bit of both yeah yeah probably a bit of both so yeah those things cover ground like oh i can't like it's insane how how much they move in a day and just and just sort of like meandering along, yeah, feeding, yeah, not flying, it's like, not running, just like moving all day constantly. They they can because because that's one of the strategies. Like if I 
<clears throat> if I if a set doesn't work out, like I can't call a call a tom in, which is pretty much my total experience. If a tom has hens, he's he's not leaving them to come to you. And the hens don't want to have anything to do with another weird hen that they hear calling over there. So they start going in a different, different direction and he won't let them out of their sight. And so I call, if, if you, if you've ever had the experience where you got a gobbler in the tree in the dark, gobble, 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 and you, you know, gobble, gobble, and everything's getting all ramped up as it's getting closer to daylight. And you're just like, oh my God, this thing's just going to fly down and come straight, straight to me. And then they, they fly down and then you hear him gobble at the base of the tree. And then all of a sudden it's like, geez, he sounded like he was a little farther away. Yeah. You're like, hmm, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. He's farther away. And then he's like, oh my God, he's like way far away. And then all of a sudden it's like, I can't even hear him anymore. And it's, yeah. that's what, that's what it is. In my experience is there's hens and a Tom and they're going in the opposite direction of you. So then my general game strategy is, is I try to pattern the movement of those birds on the landscape, staying out of sight, but just crow calling oh, yeah, yeah. and just keeping tabs on right, where right. they, where they are. And then I'm looking, basically what I'm looking for is that between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock in the morning, any of the breeding that's taken place as they travel along and feed, then the hens all separate and they got to go to their nests and lay an egg and they leave old tomboy by himself. And that's when he, in a late morning, then might want to come back to a hen call that he's heard. Uh, and then, really? and then that's an opportunity for you to pick up a bird that you've been, been, you couldn't get first thing in the morning, gotcha. but you gotta, you gotta stay on them. You gotta, you gotta like, you gotta be like a, like a private it, detective. You gotta like stay out of sight, but you gotta follow them along and then wait for kind of that opportunity, like late, late morning. Mm-hmm. But like, like I was saying, they just poke along feeding and, and, and you, you know, come over a ridge and you crow call, oh, they're down there. Okay. Like, holy shit. They're now, they're like 300 yards away. So he, like, he goes sneaking down there or whatever. And you crow call, nothing, crow call, nothing. You move a little bit more and then you crow call. And it's like, holy shit. They're like way the hell up yeah. the ridge over there. Right. And, and they're, and they're over the course of the morning, they're slowly getting farther and farther away from you. And it's like, you know, you don't want to like run at them because yeah. you're trying to stay out of sight, but it's like, they can just cover ground. Oh yeah. And they got Nuts. killer eyes. It's hard when something's just hunted by everything else. It's hard to stock in on. Cause like their, their self-defense and their senses are so honed. So good. Well, they have, um, so they have incredibly good eyesight. Yeah. Like let's just put it up there with Eagles. Yeah. They're, um, eyes are on the side of their head. So they have incredibly good, like round vision. And the other thing that they do to help with that is when they're, they're feeding and, and moving, they actually are just kind of like wobb- wobbling their head back and yeah. forth a little bit, just like this, just little back and forth, back and forth, almost like they got some sort of little like nervous tick. And what that does is it pretty much gives them a 360 degree peripheral view just by shaking their head just five degrees each way as they're standing up and looking around. So anything that's 360 degrees around them, if it moves or it's got just a little bit of a weird shape or a shine or something like that, it's like, bam, yeah. they they see it. 
Yeah. And then anyone like, who's hunted them, they know that what that's like is like, man, you don't have to make, you could just be standing there making no movement. And like, I swear, like I've, they can see your eyeballs <laughs> moving like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the best uh, explanations I heard was, you know, when I was trying to learn everything I could about turkey hunting, this book I read and, and what the author said, it's not that they're smart. It's that they're scared of everything. Yeah. They're scared of everything. They got amazing eyesight, 360 degree vision, and they can see in color. Yeah. And turkeys that are, um, that travel the same piece of ground over and over and over and over, which they do. You could go onto a ridge and get all sitting by a big fir tree and kind of like a little bit of a bush or whatever. And they've traveled along there and fed in the morning, like hundreds of times along that ridge. They can walk up there and in a split second, they go, what's that? That wasn't there before. Yeah. You can be perfectly camoed and still whatever, but it's something that's there that's never been there before. And they can pick that stuff out like in their environment in a split second. Yeah. It's like they know their neighborhood and it's like that branch was not there yesterday. It was over there. And it's like, something's up. That's crazy. Yeah. I never, I never understood like the excessive camo and all that kind of stuff. I used to see in the magazines down the States until I started turkey hunting. And then I was like, I get it now. <laughs> like doing everything they can do to conceal themselves, like every minute little thing. Oh, abs- absolutely. I, I was blown away at their eyesight. Like it, it's crazy. And, and and the other thing that, that uh, I remember reading about him is, is, uh, and, and this is so true. It's like, if you move, they'll see you. If you don't move, they'll see you. If you think about moving, they'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So true though. Yeah. Oh. And they're, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're tricky. And, and this is where, you know, these are, these are a couple of, you know, uh, hunting tips that I, I like to put out there. So if you hand call, um, always be set up, be on the ground, sitting down, everything ready. Um, your, your decoy is kind of out in front of you before you hand call. Don't ever just like walk around and hand call because, all of a sudden you're standing there like an idiot holding your call. And all of a sudden there's a Turkey like on the dead run coming along like the trail up. And then like, that's it. It's game over. And I've learned that by mistake. So crow call to say, there's a Tom over there. And it's like, get all set up and get ready, get your decoys out and then try to lure them in with a hen call. Cause the second you call with that hen call, if, if there's a Tom that hears that, it knows exactly where that call came from. I swear to God, within a one meter radius, even if he's 300 yards away, he's like, mm-hmm. he, he's like uh, a he's Google or bang. There he is. He's got a little set of crosshairs and that's where he's coming for. Yeah. And so even if you're not moving, not whatever, and he comes strolling in there, he's like, he'll come in there and he's like head stretched out and he's looking and his eyes are just like, he's, He's looking and he's looking exactly where that sound come from. And this is where the decoys come into play. It's because he comes in there looking for where you're sitting. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, geez, there's a, there's a Jake and a hen standing right over there. And then his attention changes and he puffs out. And then, you know, hopefully he walks, he, you know, he struts in front of you. But if you're not hunting with decoys, which is, which is a huge challenge just know that that 
thing, that velociraptor is coming in <laughs> with its with its targeting system locked on where you're going to be sitting. That's a good and tip. That's that's, that's yeah. uh, you know, that's that's why I encourage the use of decoys uh, and and to to be set up and ready. Don't 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 hen call to try to like locate or or broadcast. Use that as a because I I've you know I've had it where it's taken like friggin' 45, 50, 60 minutes for the Tom to come in. Just oh, takes yeah. a sweet time, you know, yeah. coming in, coming in. And then other times it's just like they're on the dead run. Yeah. Yeah. I've had both. I've had where I've called them and they've come running in. And I've also had them where I've sat there like at, from eight o'clock and it rolled in like almost one. Yeah. I just, I didn't have any other play. I, I just sat there and I just did light hand calls like every 15 minutes, looked at my watch, did it again. I did that for for over four hours and then sure enough all of a sudden i heard a little little pop and then sure enough it was right there yeah of course it see me when i moved but yeah still it worked and that's that's also why you know if you can master a mouth read like if you're not the one where they make you throw up um learn to use that for turkey hunting because as soon as i know a gobbler's coming like i can go okay now he's on the move and he's coming this way I switch over to a mouth call. I don't call a whole lot, um, but it's basically shotgun on the knee and I'll, I have to sit there for, yeah. even if it's 45 minutes, you got to sit there comfortably in that position with the gun up. If you do need to make a little bit of a sound to like, you know, re, re, you know, re-catch their attention or, or give you a little bit of an idea where, where they've moved left or right or whatever, um, do it with the mouth call. But if you got to start like reaching down, making a scratching call, picking your gun and reaching back up, what you're going to find is one day you're going to do that. And you're going to slowly be bringing your shotgun back up. You're going to get it on your knee and you're slowly going to bring your eyes up. And there's going to be a freaking red head standing there over the crest of the hill, staring right at you. And yeah, I, I was sitting on my butt and then to draw back, I went to try to move to get to my knee so I could draw my bow back. And that's when he caught me. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah bow, I, I have bow a problem with the mouth calls. Yeah. Do you? I have a problem with the mouth calls. Well, yeah, because I go to, I inherently go back to trying to call cow elk. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it always, I could start, you know, I could watch the YouTube videos. And yeah. I, it's not that I can't make the sounds. But it's like in no time, all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, it's a sweet cow call. I'm, no, I'm hunting turkeys. No, I got to learn you, how to turkey call. You, and it's like, yeah. You. <laughs> no, you, we, you always got to think of that that ahead. grading circle. Yeah. Like you're like, you got a record going around and around. Like yeah. That, right? yeah. That just. Yeah. The recall is definitely the way to go for sure. Just with anything. And else, less is better. Yeah. Less calling yeah, that, is that's better. That's one thing always... we did. We did at the very beginning. We first started. We go like calling crazy, and like basically just like you hear some turkeys going off, and like we just go absolutely apeshit with the calls, and like then took us a few years to figure it out that maybe we're calling too much. Let's try to calming it down, and then sure enough, yep. but... yeah, yeah. The best the best thing is where I can get like where he just keeps gobbling and he just keeps gobbling and you can tell he's like, he's amped up and he's frustrated. It's like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Right. And I'm just like, okay, I got you right where I want your, you want this worse than I do. Yeah. He's on a string. Yeah. Yeah. So last year we got, we had success late afternoon, like four o'clock, five o'clock, which was completely new to us. Like I've never, 
Yeah. Wow. I've, I've never gotten them that late in the afternoon. And my son, he got it first day, opening day. He missed, he missed a turkey in the morning and we went back into that same spot. We left, we went back into that same spot and we didn't even call. We just sat there in the field. He had his 22 and sure enough, they came walking across the field and he got one. And then two days later, I went to the exact same field, exact same time. And there was another group, there's the same group walking across and I got one. Oh, so, right on. Yeah. That's the first yep. time. It's it's, yeah, and I actually think I remember you saying, I'm never going to get up early for these turkeys again. I can sleep <laughs> in, I can go out in the afternoon and it's hard it's to argue. So that. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I was like, man, like I've chased them for years. I remember like I'd leave here at two o'clock in the morning just so I could get out there when it's dark still. And then I love shoot. that though. Oh yeah. And then you're yeah, shooting I love, at five in the afternoon. I love that. I love that. Uh, I love that. I love being out there in the door dark and the whole entire forest comes alive. Yeah. 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 You know, all you the other it, birds, yeah. you know, start, you know, chirping and, you know, and all that sort of uh, stuff. And I just, I, I love that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty neat when you're sitting there and it's not, it's not, it's still dark and you can just hear those birds. Like if you get them on a good morning and they're going off and then all of a sudden you got like four or five different different toms and jakes going at it it's like man it sounds pretty cool oh it is it's yeah. it's it's absolutely amazing but uh yeah i mean it's you know they they're like elk in the sense that you know the morning is when they're super fired up the high testosterone levels and then it'll it'll start to like wane you know down as as you get closer to noon yeah. so they can be definitely a little bit less interested uh, wind affects their gobbling activity. Mm -hmm. So once the winds start to pick up a little bit in the afternoon, it affects their ability to hear. And so then that makes them, uh, nervous because of, you know, they rely so much on, on hearing as well, uh, and hearing like predators and other things and all that kind of stuff. So that tends to make them a bit more cautious and damp dampens their, their gobbling activity down you know, a little bit, mm -hmm. but the more you work an area and you stay loyal to an area and you start to get like this, this circuit, I've always found they tend to go on circuits. You know, they roost here in the morning, they're down mm -hmm. and they make this gigantic, big, huge loop on the landscape. And then towards evening, they're coming back to the general, like we were talking earlier, the general vicinity of kind of where they started in the morning. And they make these big, huge, huge loops. And the more you can kind of like get familiar with that, then one of the other strategies you can start to use is like, is, is anticipating where they're going to be and then just setting up and, you yep. know, like, Hey, I've, I've heard them traveling along that ridge up there. I've, I've been, you know, I've been up on that ridge hunting elk and, you know, and later in the year or whatever. And they, I've heard them go along there a couple of times. So it's like, well, I'm just going to go up there at whatever three in the afternoon. I'm just going to sit up there on the top yeah. of the ridge. Yeah. And see, that's the thing, like where we hunt turkeys, that's the only area where we ever, where we've ever hunted turkeys. And last year there was like where we set up, there wasn't, a, there was a lot of snow on the ground still on in that area. And like where we set up, there was no snow. And so like, we were just kind of like focusing on areas where there was, there was no snow and kind of sure enough, that's where the turkeys were, were, where there was no snow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where they're going to be getting the food. I mean, they've been scratching and digging around and eating, you know, ponderosa pine seeds all winter. So yeah, they're going to want to get straight to places where, 
greenery is starting to poke through and uh, where the warm afternoons might bring a little bit of insect activity or a little bit of, you know, spider activity on the, on the, on the bushes or something. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was a big thing that had to do with them being in that field was that it was just open. They were in the area and that field was open and it was kind of greening up and it had a lot of good, a lot, a little bit of everything that they need. And yeah, good, yeah, some good, good groceries there. Yeah, abs, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think just, it's important to like any animals, if you stay loyal to a piece of ground and over the days and the weeks and the seasons, it's like, you know, there's this draw and that ridge yeah. and there's this trail and that thing. And if they're on that ridge, if I go down and cross here and go over there, I can get there more quickly. And, and it's that lay of the land, uh, I think is, is a, one of the biggest advantages you're going to have in turkey hunting mm -hmm. is, uh, is that lay of the land and then starting to figure out a little bit, you know, yeah. kind of where they will tend to pattern year after year yeah. and, yeah. Like I said, we go there every year and that's the thing is like, you just learn the landscape. Like even if there's not, even if there's no snow anywhere, you still learn where the ridges are and like where the good ground is and like where they historically have been like every spring. They're not right there, but they're in this area and they're up here. They're up on that ridge for a reason at this time. And yeah, you'll definitely learn. You learn the hard way. You learn by taking your licks, but it, uh, yeah, definitely. Pays I mean, off. now, now where you can kind of get messed up on all this and I have in the past is the Miriam's wild turkey are, are sort of known of all the subspecies to be the most nomadic. They, they move around and they'll just literally like pack up and leave an area and, and take up residence in a new area, almost like historically the way bison herds used to operate across the North American great plains is they never like stayed in a piece of area like habitually till they beat it to death. They were, they were there, but then they would just like up and move camp and, and plunk down again. So if you were bison hunting, you'd have to be like, Oh, where the hell did they go? And then it's like this hundred kilometer track to find, find mm -hmm. the herd again. So I have found that I can go into an area and it's like, there's turkeys here this spring, there's turkeys there next spring, there's turkeys there the spring after. And then all of a sudden, and this is where I've been caught. It's like, okay, I'm not going to go in and scout like two weeks before the season. Cause they're always there every year. And then I head in there and it's like, <clears throat> they're not here this year. Yeah. And, and it's, and it, you just, you swear that it was like, they vaporized off the planet. And it's like, what's, what's going on? Like there is no birds in this area. And so what I've come to learn and I think this is where people get mixed, mixed up a little bit where they're like, they're like, well, their population's way down. It's that they have this habit of just packing up and like moving yeah. and plunking down and you, and maybe that's like 10 kilometers away. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you're using the first part of the hunting season and you're, you're looking for them. ripping around all over the landscape to figure out where, yeah, uh, where, where they go. And then. You know, and then like whatever the next year, it's like, oh, now they're all back in this area that they used to be or whatever. And uh, it's weird. I mean, I've, yeah. you know, had those area those areas where, you know, you've got half a dozen toms living in a particular area and then you roll in there the next spring and you swear that they do not exist at all on the landscape. They're yeah. just, they're gone. Yeah. That, we've that had season. that in that, in that same area where they were, they were in one section of that area. And this is a fairly 
it's a fairly it's not a small area like it's a big area where where we hunt but one year there they're there they're there again they're there again the year after and then they were gone and then we found them yeah like about six kilometers away up closer to the farms up along the okay fence line. okay we found, That's way up, we found them way up top weeks later we found them but we did the same thing we're like oh they're here every year right and then nothing and then like just ghosts gone and then we found them up higher right and then we're like oh well maybe it has something to do with the you know the early spring or has something to do with something right like why would they all of a sudden move maybe maybe they're down here earlier and then they just moved up and then the next year they're up top and then sure enough they were back way down but not they were back lower than the, where they were the very first year we find it's kind of like they do this big giant circle yeah it's odd yeah and and so I don't, you know, I don't know exactly if that's correlated to uh, like the spring season and, you know, where there's food or if it's just part of this bigger survival strategy that they have where they're just like, you know, okay, gang, everybody listen up, you know, yeah, we've been using this area for three years now. Um, there's a chance, that, you know, they got us figured out. So grab all your stuff and this year. Like we're going, yeah. we're going up on the benches or well, something what, like that. Right? What we thought it might be is just for breeding cycles. So they don't, we thought maybe they're, they do that to get out of inbreeding because when they were up top, there was another group that's close to them up there as well. We oh, that's may, a good may, point. Maybe that that group comes over and then just to, so there's not too much like the same breeding and the same group of Turkey. That's what we kind of, that's interesting. Yeah. That's what we thought. Maybe that had something to do with that. Cause it was like, they just would be here and then they'd move up here. And then, but we, I know, like, we know that there's another group of turkeys not far from there. And then the same when they were down low, we thought maybe they were just moving around. So they didn't have a lot, bunch of inbreeding. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's interesting. I mean, the thing is, is most likely all those birds probably all aggregate together and winter together. Yeah. And that's why you'll see those groups of like a hundred or whatever in the winter flocks. But this time of the year, it's like they all bust into little groups of like mm-hmm. two, threes and fours and stuff. And then they all get away from each other on the landscape. And now, yeah. now you're, you're and then they around group, for yeah, these they, little groups. Cause like we've seen them in the same area in the fall and they've been back in groups of like 20, 30. They've yeah. So up, slowly. Yeah. So over the, like in the spring, the hens will clutch and then they'll have like, 8, 10, 12. And then, you know, you get one, like two hens bring their clutches together. Right. And all of a sudden you got like a flock of 25 or 30 birds. Oh, okay. I get you. Yeah. And that's gotcha. just two, two moms and, and their, and their, oh, that, and, that's what and their seeing. clutches, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Makes sense. So are they naturally scattering? Like after they've been bred, the hens, the hens is what I'm talking about. Are they naturally scattering and getting as far away as possible just to, uh, bring up the chances of, uh, of, of the chicks surviving and stuff. Yeah, so, the, so not everything's all in one area. Yeah. So the hen, the hens, the hens go find a nest and they, they kind of get a bit of a nest like prepped and then they wander back and they, they group up and then the next morning there'll be some breeding and then they will all go their separate directions and each hen will go back to her nest and lay an egg. And then they'll lay like one egg per day over like a, a two or three week period. And then they'll sit on, when they're done, they'll sit on that nest and okay. then incubate. And then as the cool thing about birds, uh, then they all hatch it within minutes of each other. Hmm. So an egg can be laid like cool. three weeks earlier, but it can't do anything until it achieves a certain temperature of her being on the nest. 
and then oh. they all they all achieve that thermal um warming at the same time and they're all born at the same time so they're all born within you know like a, a little short period of time and then she can up and say start following me we're le leaving the nest but they want to be separate from each other in the landscape so that it's harder for predators to find them and nest predators gotcha. so predators that have got their head down that are traveling all over the landscape and you know everything from skunks to black bears and everything mm -hmm. they're looking for nests as well and they'll they'll eat the eggs so as a survival strategy the more the hens are dispersed all over the landscape and you know in some little little kind of uh, nook somewhere the greater protection than they have than if six hens were all within like a 30 meter radius of each other right then uh, they'd all get sense. clean one one black bear rolled in he clean out like yeah. six nests so yeah makes sense yeah so black bear do a lot of damage to a group of oh eggs. man <laughs> yeah they so can if they're being if they're laying eggs over potentially a couple weeks how many times does a hen get bred then like every day multiple times every yep. single day coming back into their groups to get yep. bred yeah gotcha hmm. yeah it's wild interesting i never knew and that. so so and it may not be with the same male i mean she she could end up having um you know eight or ten you know um poults yeah. that all have different fathers or yeah, right. yeah. several different fathers. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's part of where the, the genetics and mixing things up come from. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. interesting. You, now your course covers all this. Yes. So anybody you need and what do we got uh, a couple of weeks till Turkey? A couple of weeks. You would definitely get, get through the course. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And they can find that. Uh, on the hunterconservationist.com website. Just when you land on the homepage, just scroll down to the bottom and you'll see the wild turkey masterclass and then just click enroll and a couple steps and you and get access to, to yeah, about eight, eight hours of content. So yeah, I bet it nice. took a lot longer than eight hours to put together. That's yeah. A whole, uh, a whole entire winter, like four months. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot of work. So yeah. yeah Cause the vast majority of like the lessons uh, are like video based. So it might be narration to a, like a slide presentation on a topic. And so, yeah, you got, you build, you build the slide and then you got to narrate to it and then record that and then produce a video that goes onto Vimeo, then gets linked to linked yeah. to the course. So yeah, it's yeah, a, a lot to it. All that stuff, man. Like lots, lots of work. I mean, editing a podcast is a lot of work. Pete knows all oh, about it. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I'm lucky there. I just get to show up for my looks and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, anyway, thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Um, hey, it was a lot of yeah, fun. Appreciate it. We'll have to catch up again in another year. Yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. I can't believe it's a year. You look younger than you did last year, but I'm going to credit it to the yoga. Yeah. The yoga. Maybe Pete looks a year older or two years older. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I should have shaved before the show. That's what it is. Well, the white coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah Mark's going to have all, to do a, a yoga instructor's course for Pete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Um, okay, Mark, uh, where can everyone uh, listen to your podcast and all that stuff? I'll put it up in the show notes too. But Yeah, you bet. So the Hunter Conservationist podcast, it's on all the major platforms. And if you subscribe or follow to that, then you'll also get the Round Canada podcast, which is um, in goes into the same feed now. So... Uh, if you don't know, the Round Canada podcast is 
uh, a lot of deep dives into uh, aspects of hunting and wildlife management. Uh, quite a few of the shows are with uh, scientists, uh, wildlife managers, and biologists and stuff digging into various topics and quite in-depth conversations. The Round Canada podcast is kind of like a what's going on coast to coast in Canada as far as um, stories about uh, science, conservation, hunting, fishing, all of those types of things. It's like a quick way to keep yourself on top of everything going on in Canada. So that's what the Round Canada good. podcast is. Yeah, nice. something some for everybody on each corner of the country. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which and, is really cool because when you hear from people from like Nova Scotia on a Nova yeah. Scotia topic or somebody's going like, hey, you know that story about the deer in Saskatchewan? Well, you know, I live here and here's a couple things you didn't know about. And so it's like, oh, that is just so cool, right? Like I love yeah, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good to listen to because like on our show, we just cover, I mean, we just were mostly, mostly I mean, we bow hunting and elk and mule deer is pretty much all we, we tend to talk about, so. Uh, most of our stuff tends to be out west, so um, it's good, definitely good to catch up and listen to other, you know, other situations and topics and conversations that are going on in the rest of the country. Yeah, no, I pre- appreciate that. So cool. Okay, Mark, thanks again. Uh, you Pete, bet. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks and, for uh, some of the tips. Learned some new stuff today about turkeys, and uh, definitely try to put it to use if I manage to. Oh, get good, for good them. luck. You can I, you can I, relay I'm it excited. to your wife so she can get it done. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> What was that thing? I'm not going to get anything this year. Well, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, really. So oh, there's a, there's a Tom coming in. He's goblin, but I'm pro- it's probably not going to work out. He's probably going to see me or he's probably going to get weirded out by something. Yeah. Oh, I'll just, yeah, I'll just my... sit here and zen out. And then all of a sudden going, holy shit, he's standing there right in front of me. Oh my God. What am I supposed to do now? My wife will be like, just shut up and be quiet over there. I'm going to take care of this. <laughs> Okay, guys. Good chatting with you. All right. Thanks. You bet. Thanks. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning into the Focus Hunting Podcast, coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoors production. Pete and I wanted to thank all you guys, the listeners, for tuning into the overpass 100 episodes of the show. This journey has been a lot of fun for both Pete and I, and we couldn't do it without your guys' support, so we really value that. And uh, you're going to notice a bunch of promo codes down in the show notes. Use them. Save a bunch. Love you guys. Until the next time.